Welcome to Strong Not Starving, formerly the M. Kane Coaching Podcast. My name is Marcus Kane, and if you want to beat binge eating and create a rewarding relationship with food and exercise, you're in the right place. In today's episode, my guest Jay from the page Science by Jay is going to be talking with me about a topic I've been trying to find a way to chat about for a long time. The topic of plant-based diets can get particularly charged when those of us with a history of disordered eating or eating disorders join the conversation. And I personally don't follow a strictly plant-based diet, but I know it's a big topic of discussion in the online nutrition space. I chose to bring Jay on to talk about this because he's not afraid to share both sides of the discussion. From an ethical perspective, he's chosen a plant-based diet, though in doing so, Jay refuses to use pseudoscience to back up his position and doesn't pretend that his ability to stick to a purely plant-based diet is always flawless. So in this episode, we talk about some claims made within the nutrition space on both sides of the plant-based diet discussion, particularly surrounding seed oils and soy products and their role in long-term health and hormone balance. Now, whenever I release an episode of Strong Not Starving, my goal is to deliver balanced information and talk about both sides of any given topic or discussion, while at the same time being aware of the fact that when it comes to the journey out of disordered eating, we need to allow for very flexible approaches to food. When I was making my own first few steps out of an eating disorder that lasted well over a decade, I wasn't able to be part of discussions about plant-based approaches to nutrition because any kind of dietary guidelines for me at that stage made me feel like I was back in one of the dietary patterns that exacerbated my own eating disorder. I found it very hard to be around colleagues who were constantly talking about different diets, especially when I felt like they were judging me for not living up to their standards. So having personal experience in this position is why I've chosen very carefully who I've created this episode with. And the primary goal here is to be really clear in dismissing some of the false claims often made by both sides of the plant-based diet discussion. So with that in mind, listen to this episode if you feel like you'll find it interesting or helpful, but trigger warning, only listen if you feel like this is a helpful conversation for you to be a part of and to hear right now at your stage in your own process. I don't officially endorse any particular dietary approach and will always encourage you to employ a combination of experience, critical thinking, self-awareness, and your personal values in choosing a path that's right for you. So without further delay, here's my chat with Jay. So you've had a bit of a, a personal shift in regards to, you know, your approach to food very recently. And I, yeah, I get the feeling from your content um, and just from chatting with you now that that's something that you feel you'd like to talk about a bit more. Yeah, yeah. I'm really open to talking about that because a lot of people have asked me um, about this and a lot of people have you supported me or, or really adamantly uh, went against me as a recent, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, longtime supporters, you know, either they support my transition or, you know, they've said, screw you guy and just unfollowed me. So yeah, it's been, it's been a world war. So what was this thing that you did that was so horrific that got people that have been following you for like a long time now to turn around and say, oh, you know what, dude, I'm out. What did you do that was so <laughs> terrible? I literally said that um, I'm transitioning to a vegan lifestyle. 
Yeah. Oh no! I didn't tell anyone to do that, but I, I said that I was going to transition to a vegan lifestyle. Yeah, and I was I was there for that post. Like I saw that, and it just the uh, the energy of what I can only describe as like dietary like tribalism came out like so strong there. It was almost like you showed up in your space, like your social media space, and said. You know what this is something i'm 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 doing for me it's important to me these are the reasons why i hope you'll enjoy hearing about the process that journey and what i learned what what's been your experience of that like it's, it's really hard when um because you know this transition didn't happen overnight obviously it took a lot for me to, to realize um, what my values are and how to live in accordance with those values. And, you know, this was the best approach for myself, you know, and, and obviously I'm not doing it because I want to lose weight or because I want to be on a fancy elimination diet. I'm doing this because I generally see a sociopolitical struggle with, um, you know, animals and the way that we treat animals. And, you know, I want to, not be a part of animal exploitation you know whether that's from farming or whether that's you know through clothing or whether that's through um animal experimentation you know i think these issues generally mean a lot to me so uh, mm. that's the reason why i adopted this lifestyle not because you know i just thought that would be cool to just stop eating meat yeah and something that's come up really recently or you know over the last month in your content that I really admire you for putting out there is the fact that, you know, you haven't tried to dress up what you're doing with some kind of plethora or selection of like cherry picked studies and, you know, saying that you're doing it because meat causes this, this and this and, you know, in the human body and like you haven't drawn on a whole lot of dicey science to try and justify this choice you've been very firm in just saying no it's a it's about essentially animal welfare and that's that's why i'm doing this and in the same breath you've gone so far as to say you know a diet that includes animal products can be perfectly healthy but that's just not what you choose to do. And I really admire that because a, a lot of people who are aggressively flying one particular dietary flag often try and just throw stones at like every other approach. Whereas you've made it really clear that, you know, you made this choice for you because of your yeah. values. But you haven't felt the need to to bring a whole lot of pseudoscience to the table to try and justify it. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not sitting there saying that um, you know, meat is automatically bad for people, you know, health-wise. Obviously, there's there's certain exceptions where, you know, you want people to eat more fruits and vegetables overall, you want people to cut back on something like red or processed meat, you know, but those are evidence-based recommendations supported by numerous guidelines uh internationally. Um, so that's not, I'm not saying anything that's factually incorrect. Um, it's just like when you, like you said, when you adopt a, a certain team or a certain approach, people automatically have a bias against other approaches. And, you know, my bias is I want people to 
uh, eat less animals overall. Ideally, I want people to be vegan, but I understand that, you know, that's not feasible for everyone at, at any given time. So, I mean, the best hope I could have is people eat less meat, more plants, and, you know, benefit from that. Because, um, mm. you know, ultimately a plant-based diet like a Mediterranean diet is evidence-based, is supported by a lot of a plethora of data to follow. Mm. And when you say the Mediterranean diet, like that was a pro an approach, like I don't like putting my own approach to food either on a pedestal or, you know, I don't like boxing myself in because of you know my own history with you know multiple eating disorders and it it helps me in a lot of ways to have a certain amount of freedom of choice though if i had to if someone put a gun to my said to my head sorry and said you know you have to describe your approach to nutrition or an approach to nutrition that has worked best for you in the form of one of these titles, I would say essentially that, okay, the Mediterranean diet approach worked pretty well for me. Like I fe felt good. And right. it, it brings me to a post that you made just the other day when you said, you know, you can't pick and choose the facts that you believe. Yeah. And yet a lot of people out there are, are currently doing that. So is it okay if I, run through like a really short list with you of some loud let's call them topics that you've posted about in the last uh in the last month i'm perfectly down yeah let's do it huge one is that soy consumption leads to increased estrogen production it makes men more effeminate where like where does that argument come from so maybe if we had an understanding of where that came from what they're trying to hang that argument on and then why it's wrong maybe we could have a better understanding of that process in our previous conversation you used the term mechanistic fuckery which yeah. i feel could apply here yeah yeah definitely um when it comes to soy um you know there's certain uh, when you consume soy, there's certain compounds that um, seem very similar to our conception of the hormone estrogen. Um, I forgot the exact name of them. It's something, something, something like estrogen. It's like it's it's like a weird like word that's kind of like estrogen, but it's not. And um, you know, people associate that with acting sort of like estrogen in the body, which we considered, you know, a quote unquote feminine hormone. Um, I don't think that's a, a accurate categorization of a, of a hormone in the body as feminine or non-feminine. But, you know, this idea that if you consume soy, it's associated with a certain compound that is sounds like estrogen and is related to estrogen, but it's not necessarily estrogen, uh, has caused a lot of confusion. So people automatically jump the gun and think that if you consume soy, you're, you're increasing estrogen in the body. Which, if you look at you know any of the um, outcome data, as far as like you look at serum testosterone, you look at free floating testosterone, you look at the meta analyses, people that consume soy, their testosterone levels don't decrease, they don't really change, and you know we don't really see any effects of increased uh, estrogen with populations that consume high amounts of soy. So you look at any Asian population, you don't you, they consume a lot of soy products they don't have what we considered increased levels of estrogen or, or, or 
uh, sort of like the, the symptoms of that, which we, I forget the medical term for it, but it's essentially like a man developing sort of breasts that resemble a female. That, you know, that's a case study that often a lot of people point to, um, but we don't see that in these populations either. We don't see increased risk of that. So essentially it's just a, a mechanistic understanding of, well, soy is associated with this compound. This compound is somewhat related to estrogen. Therefore, soy increases estrogen and that's bad. But that's not the story. That's not the whole story. And that's not representative in the evidence. Mm. When we have these conversations and when I listen to you talk about this stuff, the way you describe it reminds me of like Da Vinci Code logic, like the kind of stuff, <laughs> that, the kind of stuff that you would read in a book like the Da Vinci Code or, you know, like some kind of thriller where the author has taken certain events or certain historical events or places or whatever and tied them together in such a way that for the purpose of that particular story, it almost sounds plausible. It's like, oh, my God, the pyramids and Stonehenge and they're connected and whatever. And you can kind of weave this narrative if you do a good job at it, at it right? It almost sounds like there's a little bit of that going on or maybe a lot of that going on in the nutrition space sometimes. There's a lot of conspiracism in the nutrition space, particularly in the, um, you know, the carnivore and keto camp. I'm not saying that this isn't the case in the vegan community as well, but it's more profound and prolific, I would say, in the keto carnivore ancestral health crowd. There's, you see this all the time with arguments about the dietary guidelines and the big government, big food, big this, big that. There's a lot of conspiracism around it. So, of course, like, you know, with, with conspiracism logic, you're going to, have these dots and you're just going to connect them in different kind of convoluted ways to get to a conclusion that you kind of want. Mm. Um, and that, <laughs> and that, and that you're going to make that obviously the basis of your belief system. Um, so a lot of these individuals do that. Yeah. And where do you think conspiracy theories? I mean, we could say in general, but we're talking about the nutrition space right now. So let's talk about that. Where do you feel like conspiracy theories come from and why do they appear? Like, why create or invent conspiracy theories around nutrition? Are people just bored? Like, what? where are these things coming from? And how do these arguments support themselves or how do people support these arguments? So uh, a good resource to look at is a psychologist by the name of Karen Douglas. She support, she researches conspiracy theories, but she has a, a lot of good papers out there. And one of the points that she makes about conspiracy theories and, and the, the adoption of conspiracy theories is that it meets certain psychological needs for many people. Because conspiracy theories offer certainty, they offer a sense of control, they offer a sense of community and they offer a sense of, of understanding. So, you know, in a world that is chaotic and random and a lot of things happening for no particular reason, uh, a conspiracy sort of bridges everything together into a nice neat narrative that sounds pleasant and it makes you feel like you know something. It makes you feel like you're, you know, you're certain. 
And it kind of um, gives you also a community to, to fall back on because there's other people that are going to believe that particular thing. You notice that conspiracies are never in a vacuum. There's always a community or a group of people that believe in them. Um, I don't think that's coincidence whatsoever. Mm. So there's a few needs there that are, you know, fundamental human needs, the need for community connection, the need for stability, not yeah. wanting things to be like unknown quantities. Like we don't like to hear the answer, you know, oh, it depends, or I don't know for sure. Even if we're hearing something that sounds scary, it sounds like we'd much rather hear a definitive answer that's scary than a non-definitive answer that's just a bit like yeah we're not sure yeah i mean it's a psychological need to crave certainty um you know we we want to be consistent we want to understand things um it, it's it's beyond just nutrition but you know when when you tie your identity to a particular diet or a particular way of eating um it gives you a lot of certainty about uh sort of your health and the way the world works. Um, you look at the, like I said, the ancestral crowd, the narrative, the idea that you need to go back to your ancestors. Like that's a comforting narrative that explains away a lot of different uncertainties that person might have. So of course a thing like that is going to be appealing. Something that often goes with a lot of the conspiratorial stories that I've heard from the nutrition space is the seed oils argument you know it's like just how bad seed oils are for you and you know what you should use instead and this really tears me up sometimes because there are people in the industry who i very much enjoy listening to who i think have done some really cool work maybe in some particular area but then they they turn around and in the same breath start talking about something that sounds absolutely mental and when when anyone challenges them on it they fly the sheeple flag you know that like, oh you're being lied to you know you're not being told the truth like this and that how do we reconcile that like it it takes a certain mind to be able to like appreciate maybe some good work someone has done on one hand but then just take a whole other section of their work and go, you know what, maybe that opinion that they have on that particular topic, I can do without. But this other stuff over here that they did is actually pretty good. And I'll listen to that bit. But this whole conspiratorial, like demonizing seed oils thing, maybe that can be left out. But, you know, myself as a coach, rather than someone with a master's or a PhD or anything like that, sometimes some of these arguments around seed oils make me think okay maybe i should get a second opinion so what are your thoughts on that whole argument so you know something that i, I really try to tell coaches especially ones that wouldn't understand nutritional science is that just as you would for exercise science you, you know you want to see the actual human outcome data so you want to see if someone is saying X nutrient is causing Y disease, you don't want to see that in mice too much. You don't want to see that, you know, via mechanism saying, oh, well, this chemical reaction is in this and this and this and the third. You don't want any of that fancy nonsense. You want to see 
well, how do you know X nutrient or X diet or X whatever, you know, nutritional exposure causes Y disease? So if someone is saying seed oils causes this, where is the actual evidence in humans that seed oils causes this? Where is it? And how strong is that? You know, and how compelling is that evidence compared to other evidence that su suggests otherwise? So this is a way for people to start thinking critically about nutritional science, you know, um, especially related to the online space. It's easy to go, you know, and get a certain mechanistic understanding. Like, for instance, a couple of years ago, we were having this similar debate about fucking sugar. You know, mm -hmm. people were suggesting that sugar in of itself was bad for you. And their logic and reasoning behind it was via insulin and, you know, the, the mechanics of insulin. But, you know, if you look at isolated mechanics, you don't take into consideration physiology. You know, it's not just one hormone. It's not just one reaction. It's many different reactions. There's many different hormones. It's many different processes that act together at the same time. So how does that play out in the actual outcome? So when it comes to some of the arguments suggesting that seed oils are causing specific chronic diseases or having specific outcomes it's kind of like almost claiming that one particular thing affects you know the next single thing and then that thing then almost like a marble roll i'm getting the image of like one of those things where the marble rolls down one thing hits another thing and then triggers something else and it keeps rolling whereas in reality with the human body there are so many different uh, different variables. There are so many different things happening at the same time that it's extremely difficult or much more difficult than people realize to be able to say this exact thing here causes that exact result. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. I mean, certain individuals will claim, you know, if you consume omega-6, you know, like omega-6 fatty acid which is often prevalent in seed oils that you know it would cause you know this reaction you know be oxidized and that will cause this reaction and that will cause this reaction and therefore boom your health is shit. but you know does it actually pan out in human outcome data and the strongest human outcome data that we have it doesn't suggest that it doesn't suggest that seed oils increase risk of cardiovascular disease it doesn't suggest that it increases rates of obesity outside of caloric intake it excuse me it doesn't suggest that it increases rates of cancer we just don't have that compelling fluid evidence to suggest otherwise it, it it's like i said it's like a couple of years ago people were making similar claims about sugar and people were, were placing their bets on this idea of insulin causing all of these issues. And it just didn't play like that. Mm. We often walk into the nutrition space. I know like I used to do this a lot. I, when I, you know, was a very young PT, I'd be looking for the magical thing that would fix one thing or fix another thing. Or, you know, we, we go looking for like a single approach. That's like a cure all magic bullet. And a lot of people, when they find a particular diet, they, they kind of believe that they've found it because of maybe one book that they've read or, you know, a series of books by the same author. How would you balance the desire to satisfy that need for consistency, security, safety, 
wanting things to be in control. How would you balance those needs with seeking out information that maybe challenges some of your pre-existing beliefs or the things that you might be holding on to? Because I know that I've definitely had to push myself in my like out of my own comfort zone over the last few years when it comes to my own ideas or things that I thought were done deals with nutrition in the name of being a better coach, in the name of seeing things from different angles. How do you go about reconciling those things? Because I noticed there's a lot of information that you present that's often from a lot of different angles. So how do you manage, I guess, your own uh, desire for predictability? You got to remain curious. You, you have to, you know, it's humility. It's, it's the idea that you might not have the full picture, especially when it releases something that's really complicated, right? Like when it comes to nutritional science, I don't know everything. Like my background is in psychology and philosophy. Nutritional science is a hobby for me. So I'm not going to walk into this field acting like I'm top shit that I know everything about this field because I read a couple books. I realize that there's individuals who spend their entire lives, their entire waking lives, studying a small fraction of the field. Mm. So who am? So my thing is, who am I? as one person who's just looking over research to, to sit there and say that I have it all figured out. I clearly don't, you know, and that's what sparks my curiosity. I want to learn about these things. I want to learn more about these things. I want to learn about these things from people that know what the fuck they're talking about. And the people that know what they're talking about are often those who are qualified in the field. Those who are, you know, registered dietitians, those who have PhDs in the field, those who have, you know, master's degrees in the field. Now, you know, it doesn't guarantee that they're going to know everything or they're going to always get it right. But more times than not, they probably are. And that helps me in my own understanding. How are they thinking about the research? How are they thinking about the field? You know, adopting sort of their thinking processes and their mindsets. Um, because, you know, I have to have that realization that I'm not an expert in the field. And when it comes to your own, you know, your own journey over the last few months, last six months, the change that you've decided to make for yourself and how that has landed in the online space and everything. Has it surprised you just how how savagely like people protect their own beliefs surrounding their diet? Because like I'm not articulating myself super well in this episode because to be honest, like I've I've been really surprised and kind of just blown away just by how how much it seems to bother certain people that someone who they've never even met in person has chosen to change their diet. It's not easy to stand up for what you believe. It's not easy to, to go against the grain. Um, I've been doing my whole entire social media journey and it's helped and hurt me in many ways, but I feel like, you know, being authentic, being myself, I can't imagine doing it any other way. I can't imagine being someone else. I can't imagine portraying something else that's not genuine. Um, if I'm going to make money in this space, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be famous in this space, it's going to be because I'm me, not because I pretended to be someone else, not because you know of extraneous factors. 
um, just because I associate with a group, just because I associate with veganism doesn't mean shit to me. I'm still me at the end of the day. I'm still going to give quality, good nutrition and health advice at the end of the day. And, you know, I, I know there's certain individuals that are following me now in the vegan community who want me to be a little bit more extreme, who want me to be a little bit more active and aggressive. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, I'm not going to change the facts to, to conform to my ethics. It's, that's not how it works. So even amongst the, the vegan community right now, there are some people who are trying to get you to become more aggressive and more extreme in what you're presenting, but you're refusing to do that. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit as a final kind of note for us? So, for instance, when I said that I was transitioning to a vegan diet because of my issues with you know, disordered eating, eating disorders, stuff like that. You know, I got a couple of messages suggesting that I should just go cold turkey, you know, go straight to, to veganism, and that's it. You know, I've obviously, got, I've obviously got some messages that says, you know, I should be advocating for, uh, more. I should be doing, you know, certain messages a little bit more aggressively. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. My transition to a vegan diet, there's still sometimes I'm gonna admit here. There's still sometimes where I have animal products here and there, very slightly sometimes, and that's for various different circumstances. But majority of the time, I'm sticking to eating predominantly plants and plant substitute meat products. I'm not a perfect human being, and sometimes in the community we expect perfection. We expect a certain uh, attitude or a certain way of being and it's not really feasible. It's not really accurate. It's not an accurate representation of human nature. If most people can't stick to a health promoting diet, if most people can't stick to a health promoting diet, what makes you think that they're automatically all the time going to stick to an elimination diet like this is, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. People are not going to be pure quote unquote. I'm sure there's a lot of vegans out there who have had animal products and haven't told anyone, and they're probably ashamed to tell people. They're probably ashamed of themselves. And I'm telling people that they shouldn't be. You know, it's like breaking any habit, you know, or, or any custom or anything like that. It takes time. It takes patience. And along the journey, you're going to fuck up. Um, so, no, I'm not a pure, holy vegan. And, you know, I'm not going to share crazy animal videos of animals being abused like that. You know, I'm not going to do that. But... You know, I will stand up for what veganism is, what the ethic is, what the ideal is, because it is an ideal and it's something that we should strive towards, regardless if we're perfect day to day. Mm. Thank you so much for your time today, man. I really appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. And that's it for us today. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. I hope you found it really helpful. If you'd like to reach out and chat to either Jay or myself, I'll include links in the episode description. So my name's Marcus Kane, and I'll be back with another episode of Strong Not Starving soon.